Be seated. Any children who need the nursery or would like to go to Stepping Stones, you're free to go at this time. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the third chapter of Ephesians. We're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. This morning we come to chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. Please give your full attention to the word of God. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we are halfway through our study of the book of Ephesians. Chapters 1 to 3 that we've looked at and are finishing up today basically are a deep dive into the eternal plan of God to save sinners in Christ. That great cosmic plan of redemption, what we call the gospel, the good news. It's one, this section, this first section of Ephesians, this first half we've been looking at, is one of the most majestic descriptions of God's covenant of grace, his steadfast love, how the Father predestined us to be adopted through the redemption that is in the blood of Jesus Christ, so that we, whether we be Jew or Gentile, can share together in the the eternal inheritance that Christ has given us by grace. Last week, at the end of the passage that Pastor Ben preached on, Paul talks about his high calling. It begins in verse 8. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, to this, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's whole plan for all of history is to redeem sinners so that they might dis- display his glory before the world. That's your calling, church. Well, Paul ends chapter 3 in the passage we just read with a prayer, a prayer for Christians, a prayer for the church, and then a doxology, an expression of praise to God. I want to ask you a question. When you pray for yourself, what is the most important thing that you pray for? When you pray for other Christians, what is the most important thing that you pray for? When you pray for the church, what's the most important thing that you pray for? 
I want you to notice, as you begin to look at this prayer, as Paul describes it at the end of chapter 3, that Paul does not pray for Christians to be healthy. He doesn't pray for Christians or the church to be prosperous or wealthy. He doesn't pray for us to be free from trials or persecution or suffering. What he prays for is found in verse 16, where he says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The prayer is that you would be strong according to his riches, according to his power in your inner being. He's making a distinction between our visible physical nature and our invisible spiritual nature. He's making a distinction between our bodies, our physical bodies, and our souls. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 tells us that God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived in what he's made and what he's created. And so let me ask you another question. When you look at God's creation, everything that he's made, what is the greatest evidence of his existence? Because that's what it does. It, it screams to us of the existence of God. What is it about God's creation that is the greatest, most persuasive evidence to you of God's existence? For me, it's not the sun, moon, and stars. It's not the beauty of the trees and the flowers. It's not the incredible variety of creatures that he's made, although all those things speak to his glory and speak to his existence. For me, it's something that you can't even see with your eyes, but something you know, inherently know is real, and that's the human soul. The inner being that Paul's talking about, that part of us that is made in the image of God, It's one thing that continues to mystify the materialists in our, among the materialists out there in the world, and even the materialists maybe among us, mystifies them, because we are obviously so much more than just the sum of our physical parts. We are obviously not just highly developed monkeys. There is a part of us that enables us to be self-aware that enables us to philosophize about the great concepts of the universe, that enables us to both create art and to appreciate art. There's a part of us that enables us to love and to be loved. That's that inner being. That's that spiritual nature. With the advances in artificial intelligence, it's been a renewed question, hasn't it? As scientists have developed more and more complicated artificial intelligence to the point where it's seeming to imitate human brains, it's raised and begged the question again for us, what's different about us? How come artificial intelligence could never become human? Could never become like us? It's because of that inner being. It's because of that soul, that spiritual part of our nature. I read an article on this subject just this past week. This is how it started. It said, human consciousness, 
our innermost sense of self-awareness and personal identity is perhaps the most intriguing mystery in the universe. It is the feeling of being alive and experiencing the world around us. We have a unique ability to be aware of our thoughts, emotions, memories, and even of our own awareness. Yet despite the centrality of consciousness to our human experience, it remains shrouded in mystery. Science, as of today, has no definitive explanation for what consciousness is, how it occurs, or why it exists at all. It sits at the intersection of philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, cognitive science, and even quantum physics, each attempting to unwrap layers of this profound mystery. I want to remind you of what I said a couple weeks ago, is that when the Bible defines a mystery, when you talk about mystery in Scripture, it's not about something that can't be understood. It's something that can only be understood by God's revelation. And that's the soul. That's the inner being. The answer is in God's word. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Our souls, our inner being. Just what Paul's praying for here at the end of chapter 3. So, how does our soul become stronger? If that's to be our main prayer request when we pray, Lord, make my soul stronger. Make my brother and sister in my church stronger in their soul. Make the church strong, full of strong souls. If that's our main prayer, then how does it happen? Well, I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 16 and 17, that it's the work of the triune God. It's one of those beautiful places where you see all three persons. We believe in one God in three persons, the mystery of the Trinity. You see all three persons at work in making this happen. He says that the Father, out of the riches of his glory, grants us strength through his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit fills our hearts with the presence of Christ, it's so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It is a work of the triune God. This is where Paul's prayer for Christians and for the church matches up with Jesus' prayer the night before he went to the cross in the upper room when he met with his disciples. And he prayed for them, and this is what he said. He's praying to the Father, and this is what he says about the disciples and those to whom the disciples would preach the gospel. That would be you and me. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they might become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. That's in a very real sense what salvation is. It's the triune God inviting us into that eternal fellowship that they've had from before the foundation of the world. To know that love. to make us strong through knowing the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how we receive this inner power. That's how we receive this sense of a presence, the presence of Christ himself within us, with us, 
in us in the language of Scripture. How does it happen? Well, verse 17 says we need to have Christ in us. What it means is to be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. Rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. That's how your strength grows. Now, I want you to first of all notice that rooted and grounded... You don't see it so clearly in the English, but in the Greek, it's clear these are passive verbs. In other words, it's something that's done to us. We are rooted by God through his spirit in the love of Christ. We are founded, we are grounded in the love of Christ by the Holy Spirit. There's two images here, two very common metaphors that Paul uses. First of all, a tree compares us to a tree. Scripture does it often. And then compares us to a building, the church particularly. It's compared often to a building, particularly the temple of God, as we saw a couple weeks ago. The idea of being rooted strongly and having a strong foundation built. It's all found in the love of Christ. For a tree, for instance, to grow strong and healthy, to bear fruit and to withstand the storms of life, a tree has to have deep roots and wide roots. That's how it stands for generations. And that's what Paul is saying. You need to be rooted deep and wide in the love of Christ in order to have a strong soul. If you've never noticed, that's Oakwood's vision statement. It's there at the beginning of your bulletin. That we would grow roots deep into God's word. In other words, into a deep understanding of the love of Christ. So that we can bear fruit of worship and holiness, and so that we can branch out with the gospel to the region. It's that same image that has always been a driving picture for the leadership of our church, to see that kind of inner strength among God's people. This study and experience, not just study, but experience of the love of Christ is to be foundational to our lives. It's the soil in which our soul grows is the love of Christ the love of Christ is what separates nominal Christians and what I mean by that is Christians in name only those who are religious but don't really know Christ it's the love of Christ that separates those who are just merely religious to those who know Christ truly follow Christ have a relationship with Christ it's the love of Christ that separates the immature believer, the baby Christian, from the mature believer. That's what it means to become more mature in Christ, is to grow in your understanding and experience of the love of Christ. Because mature believers are the ones who have that inner peace, that inner contentment, security, trust, faith, steadfastness. It's all based in the love of Christ. In verse 18, Paul says he wants us to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. he's, He's trying to give us an image of something that is unbelievably vast beyond our wildest imaginations. How wide is it? Well, again, looking at the first three chapters of Ephesians, how wide is it? It's wide enough to include sinners from every nation, not just Jews, but all the Gentiles. Whatever your background, wherever you've come from, 
The love of Christ is wide enough for you. How long is the love of Christ? Well, it extends from eternity past when we were first chosen to eternity future when our, we are glorified and our salvation is complete. How high is the love of Christ? It's high enough, according to chapter 3, to seat us with him in the heavenlies. And how low is it? The love of Christ is low enough to rescue you from hell, death, depravity, and slavery to sin. Being dead in our trespasses and sins, that's how low the love of Christ is able to go, according to chapter 2. Paul is asking us to do the impossible. Actually, he's asking God to enable us to do the impossible. As he puts it, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know the unknowable. Not in the sense that it can't be known, but that it can't be, it can't be comprehensively known. It's so far beyond us. Just as Abraham couldn't count the stars in the heavens and he couldn't count the grains of sand on the seashore, we cannot find the limits of Christ's love. Where are the boundaries of Christ's love? No one has any idea. No one's ever seen them. There are no limits or boundaries to Christ's love because it's based on his completed work on the cross. Earlier in the service, Pastor Ben read from Romans 8. And that's where it says, if God has already given us his son, how is he not also with him graciously going to give us all things? That's the farthest extent of the love of God we can see is the cross. No gift that God has given, no sacrifice he's made, no blessing he's poured out is greater than him giving up his only begotten son on the cross to bear the, the pains of hell in your place and my place so that we might be saved. If he's given us that, what lesser thing is he going to withhold from us? as a loving father. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means to contemplate the vastness, the boundary, boundary, boundarylessness of the love of Christ. Do you remember when you were a kid, maybe you heard this in a Sunday school lesson or in VBS, or maybe you taught it yourself. Use that example, you'd, you'd say to the kids, how much does Jesus love you? And you'd say, he loves you this much to place himself on the cross in your place to die for your sins. He loves you this much, limitless. He puts away your sins as far away as east is from west. I did a study, I, I, I did a series of sermons many years ago on 1 John, and 1 John is the New Testament epistle to really dig deep into the love of Christ and what that means for how we love each other. And as, in a part, as, as I did expositions in 1 John, I had to think about what, what, how does John or how does the Holy Spirit here define love? What is love? The world has no idea what love is. The world thinks you find love in a bedroom or in a sport or in a job or in a craft or something. You know, they're searching for love in all the wrong places ultimately. So what is love? 
And the definition that I came up with from the book of 1 John is this. Love, as defined in scripture, is finding your joy and satisfaction in helping others to prosper in the eyes of God. Love is finding your joy and satisfaction in helping others to prosper in the eyes of God. And is that not exactly what Jesus Christ did for us and continues to do for us every day? He finds his joy and satisfaction in helping you to prosper in the eyes of God. Now, that doesn't look like prosperity to me sometimes. Matter of fact, many times I'll look at my life and say, God, are you really prospering me here? But because I know he loves me, I know that whatever I'm going through, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful, it's because he loves me. And he knows what's best for me. I want you to notice here that this study of the love of Christ, this digging deep roots into the love of Christ, it's a group activity. He says in verse 18, Paul says that his prayer is that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ. This study of the love of Christ is not an independent study. It's a group project. In John chapter 13, Jesus was teaching his disciples about love. And he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Knowing how Christ has loved us and continues to love us is how we learn how to love each other. We practice on each other. He loves us. We study that love he has for us. We practice on each other, and then we go out and share it with the world. That's how it's supposed to work. We love because he first loved us. Love for Christ. Well, again, we're talking about studying the love of Christ, but what you hope you're seeing is it's, that's why we study the word of God. It's not because we're a bunch of academics. It's not because we're a bunch of theologians. Not because we're a bunch of scholars and want to impress other people with our knowledge. We study the word of God because we want to dig deep roots into the love of Christ. And the word of God is the means by which we do that. A deeper and deeper understanding of how much he loves us and in what ways he loves us. And what, are the, 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 the vast, what is the vastness of this love that he has for us? It's through the word. You see, that's why Christ gave the church, why he gave to us as Christians the means of what we call the means of grace. The word of God, prayer, the sacraments, fellowship. This is how we do our group project. This is how we grow in our understanding and establish these deep roots into the love of Christ. As Colossians 3, chapter 3, verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's to be the life of the church, digging those deep roots down into the love of Christ. I went to a uh, conference for church leaders a week ago in Lancaster called the Lampstand Conference. It used to be called Embers to Flame and it's all about church revitalization. How do you revitalize a church? Churches that are, are declining, churches that have lost their way, churches that are discouraged. How do you revitalize a church? The answer, every seminar was a means of grace. First seminar about preaching and teaching the word of God and studying the word of God. Seminar on prayer. Seminar on the importance of worship and the sacraments. A seminar on evangelism. 
That's how you revitalize a church. That's how you revitalize a Christian. Get back to the basics. Get back to the means of grace. That's how you form those deep roots in the love of God. It's not, not you know, brain surgery. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's simple. Get back to the basics to grow deep in the love of God. And I want you to notice in verse 19, the end of this study. What's the goal? Why are we doing this? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Whoa. Why keep seeking to be stronger by digging roots deep into the love of Christ? So that you can be filled with all the fullness of God. That is an incomprehensible destiny. The more we grasp the love of Christ, the more we will love him, and the more we will become like him. That's the way it works. Think about keeping the law. We don't keep the law to be saved. Christ did that for us. But Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus said, you can summarize all of the law by saying, love God and love your neighbor. You see, that's the difference between being a legalist and loving Christ, is that you keep the law because you love God and love your neighbor. And what that means is as you love God and love your neighbor more and more, as you dig deeper roots into the love of Christ, is that you become more like God. You become more godly. You become a mature Christian. And you reflect his glory better to the world around you. That's what it means to be filled with the fullness of God. That doesn't mean you become, a, you become a God. We can't become God. God is transcendent. God is far greater than we can comprehend. We can't become God, but we can become like him in the ways according to who we are. And I, I want you to know that this incomprehensible uh, destiny of being filled with the fullness of God, it's not going to end when you die. It is the course of your life. It's what lies before you, being transformed inwardly, as Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 4. This inner transformation is going to be the course of your life if you belong to Christ, because that's the work of the Spirit in you, if the Spirit is in you. But it's not going to end at death. That's what eternity is going to look like, is being filled more and more with the fullness of God. We will never have the capacity to literally... Be filled with the fullness of God. But we can be filled according to our capacity. If I were to take a Dixie cup up to Lake Erie, do we still have Dixie cups? Are those still around? Is that, am I showing my age here again? <laughs> They're little tiny paper cups. If I took a Dixie cup up to Lake Erie, I could fill it very quickly. But you have all the rest of Lake Erie that's still there. And that's what it's going to be like for eternity. Maybe we start with a Dixie cup. When we die, we're going to be filled with the fullness of God. We're going to be perfect. No more sin. No more doubt. We're going to be perfect. Our Dixie cup will be full. But just think of all eternity. You'll become one of those red solo cups eventually. <laughs> you know, that you'll be filled more and more with the fullness of God throughout all eternity. What a life. What a hope. You know, when you talk about love in that regard, I begin to understand what the scriptures are talking about. 
On the day I married my wife, if you had asked me, I would have said, I could not possibly love my wife more than I do on this special day. Forty years later, I love her so much more than I did on that day because my capacity for love has grown as I've studied her, and more importantly, as I've studied the love of Christ and have learned how to love her better and have experienced her learning how to love me better. Our capacities have grown so much. That's what eternity is going to look like for believers. But today our souls are still so weak. We still love the things of this world too much. We care so little about the love of Christ. We spend so little time digging into that soil of the love of Christ. We spend so little effort trying to develop those deep roots as the Spirit works in us. So what is our confidence when we make this prayer? How can we know that our prayer will be answered? Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I want you just to, to, to dissect that verse for a second. Break it apart. Paul uses a Greek word here. He, he loved to pile up adjectives. That was one of his favorite hobbies, piling up adjectives. And the adjective that he piles up in this verse is the one that we get the word hyper from. Then you know what hyper, the way we use piper in the English language. And so literally what Paul is saying here, he's talking about him, God, who is able to do hyper, hyper abundantly more than we ask or think. So he's able to do so much more than we could ask or think. So break it down. What Paul is saying is God is able to do anything you ask him to do. Anything you ask him to do, God is able to do it. But he goes beyond that. He says God is able to do anything that you even could imagine asking him to do. Your wildest dreams, your biggest requests you could think of, he's able to do that. But then he adds on to that and says God could do more than that. Matter of fact, God can do much more than that, he says. And then finally he says God can do very much more than what you could even imagine asking him. That's the God you're talking to when you pray. Our prayers should always reflect that view of God when we come to him. You know, when my kids were young and they wanted something, they would come to me and they never asked for $1,000. Why? Because they knew I didn't have $1,000 to give to them. Even if I thought it was a good idea, I couldn't have given them $1,000. I didn't have it. They'd ask for $5 because they, they thought I could, I could give them $5. Their prayer, their request was, was commiserate with what they felt I could do. Our prayer should be commiserate with what we believe God can do, which is anything he chooses to do. When you pray, remember, he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. The consistent message of Scripture is that God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and an outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Matthew 19, when the apostles asked, Who can get into heaven if the rich can't get into heaven? Jesus said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Nothing is too hard for God. God can do anything but violate his own character. And so if God is with you, if, God, if Christ is in you, nothing that you ask for is impossible. Think about that for a moment. 
Nothing you ask for is impossible. God could do it. But is it God's will? Just as I wouldn't give $1,000 to my son if I knew he was going to go out and spend it on drugs and alcohol to get drunk and get high, God's not going to give us what we ask for if it's not what's best for us because he loves us so much. Is it God's will? Is the question. He can do anything, but what is his will? Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Like, wow, talk about superpower. You know, we get that icebreaker question in a small group, you know, what superpower would you ask for if you could ask for any superpower? You know, wow, move mountains, that's cool. But is rearranging the contours of the planet, is that our mission? Is that why we're here? I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. If, you know, I w if I had just a the, the faith as small as a tiny mustard seed, I could speak to Mount Nittany. It's not really a mountain, it's just a little hill. But I could speak to Mount Nittany and say, move 10 miles over here. But that's not my mission. I'm not here to move mountains. I'm here to serve Christ, to do his will. He's my Lord. To live for him, to honor him, to do his will. Do you remember how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? His prayer is to be a model for our prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. See where he starts? Everything is possible for you, God. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That's the model for our prayers. Nothing is impossible for God. God can do all things. And we can do all things through him who strengthens us. But if you're a follower of Christ, what you desire is his will. And God's will for Jesus was that he lay down his life at the cross and bear the pains of hell that you and I deserve. God's will for you is often going to be that you suffer. It's often going to be that you sacrifice. Because That'll be about your mission. Your mission to become more like Christ. Your mission to display the glory of God in your life. Your mission to edify and build up the church. Your mission to take the gospel to those who need to hear it. You can do all things through him who strengthens you. Brian Chappell in his sermon on this passage said, Paul does not limit the Father's care or ability to what we ask. Because we are human, our requests are feeble and, feeble and finite. We want dessert when we need meat. We want success when we need humility. We want safety when we need godly courage or Christ-like sacrifice. We ask within the limits of human vision, but he is able to do so much more. When we get to chapter 6 in Ephesians, the last instruction that Paul gives to the church in Ephesus, to the Christians in Ephesus, is this. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord. Sink roots deep into the love of Christ so that you will bear fruit and branch out as a healthy disciple of Jesus Christ. My prayer for Oakwood is the same prayer that Jesus has for his church. My prayer for Oakwood is the same prayer that Paul had for the church in Ephesus. My prayer is that this church would be a strong church.
a church filled with strong souls. Strong through the indwelling spirit that comes from the deeper and deeper contemplation of the infinite dimensions of Christ's love. Churches can be driven by many things. Churches can be driven by money and other resources. Churches can be driven by charismatic leaders. Churches can be driven by a sense of duty and obligation. Can be driven by legalism, good works, social change, political change. But true healthy churches are driven by the love of Christ. True healthy churches are driven by love for Christ. And true healthy churches are driven by love for each other. I'm going to end with my favorite Tim Keller quote. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. To be known but not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and fully loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Let me pray. Father, teach us this love. Lord, we think we know it. We think we know the gospel. We think we know the story of the cross. We think we know the law. We think we know Christian doctrine. But Lord, if we don't know love, it's all meaningless. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us. All these things without love is meaningless. The greatest of these is love. Lord, help us to know that more and more and to make this prayer our primary, repeated, daily prayer that we might grow these roots deep into the vast love of Christ. Do this work in us by the power of your spirit, we pray, and may our church reap the benefits of the fruit that is born. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.